I think sometimes we we believe that the the intent and the purpose of Scripture is to prove that God exists. But the more I read the Scriptures, what I really find is not so much a proving that God exists as a revelation of who God is. You sort of get a sense when you read the Scriptures that the writers of the, of throughout the, the Bible assume that God exists. But the real question is, what kind of God is he? What kind of God is the one that we worship? What kind of one is the God that the Israelites proclaim? What kind of God does Jesus come to reveal to us? And I think in many ways, that is really the heart of the scriptures, to reveal to us a pure, true image of who God is. And so as you read through the scriptures from beginning to end, you get glimpses of, of, from different authors in different ways about this is who God is. This is the one you are to worship. This is what he looks like. This is what he acts like. This is who he is. And I think one of those places which, which we find this to be especially true is Psalm 24. There's a lot of speculation about this psalm's uh, beginning. It doesn't, the text doesn't give us any indication of when David wrote this or even why David wrote this. But there is a historical story, connection of this psalm to the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem at the beginning of David's reign as king. There was a period of time back before, during Saul's time, before that, when the ark was lost to the Philistines in battle. And all throughout, the, while the Israelites recovered it, it, was, it stayed away from the city all throughout Saul's reign as king. But when David becomes king, he says, we need to bring the ark back to Jerusalem and set this place up as the city of God and the place of God with the tabernacle and to bring the ark back into it. And there is speculation that David wrote this psalm for the entrance into the city and ultimately into the tabernacle as this great celebration of who God is. No one knows exactly for sure, but as you read that psalm, you can sort of get a feel that that might well be the case. But this, And the reason why that might work be so important is because as they are bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, as they are establishing Jerusalem as the city of God, David is singing, the people are singing, this is who God is. And this is why we're doing this. What is it the psalm tells us about God? It begins by telling us that God is the creator of all things. Verses 1 and 2 begin... The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. God is the creator. And the significance of that is that if God is the creator, then he is also the ruler. He is the sustainer of all things. God is the almighty one. Everything is in his hands. Everything that... that Everything that happens in the world is ultimately God's. 
God rules over all things. God is all-powerful. One of the things that we find in the Scriptures telling us again and again, is particularly true in the Old Testament, is that God has no rival and God has no equal. He is not a God among the gods. He is the only God. All the other beings, that other the gods that other nations worship, are simply manifestations of the human mind. But the scripture is telling us there is only one God, and it is Yahweh. It is the God of Israel. He alone is God. And he has no rivals. There is no, there is no misunderstanding. Don't misunderstand, the scripture tells us. There is no sense in which God is as equal as anyone else. He is the Almighty One. I think sometimes in our minds, we have a tendency to think that Satan is the opposite equal of God. The reality is, Satan is the opposite equal of the angels. God has no equal. He has no rival. He is the Almighty One. And it starts with creation, that everything God has made is His. He created it. He established it. The the world of creation and all that that exists within it is his. It all belongs to him. He rules it. He controls it. And it is one of the most difficult things for us to accept because somewhere in the back of our minds, we believe we are in control. And we may not think we're in control of all things that happen, but we like to think we have some control, right? Right? I mean, there's a reason why we wrestle with being control freaks. Because we want to control things. And something in the back of our minds, one of the great temptations of the evil one is to tell us that that's true. One of my favorite cartoons throughout my life is newspaper cartoons, Calvin and Hobbes. I'm sure some of you have seen that. You know, it's not been in print for a long time, but you can still you can still read it, and there are books and all kinds of things. Very insightful, and a lot of theology in Calvin and Hobbes. I remember one particular uh, one particular day. It was it showed a picture of Calvin, this little six year old boy, standing next to a couple of little flowers. He was holding a watering can. And he looks down at the flowers. and He says, "So, you want some water, huh? I got a big can of it right here." He said, I control your fate. It's up to me whether you get any water or not. Your lives are in my hands. It's up to me. If without me, you're dead. Without me, you don't have. And right in the middle of that sentence, it begins to rain. There's something deeply theological about that. And the psalmist says, look, this is God is the Almighty One. And you think that's the anchor point of who God is. But he also says that God is the Holy One. Verse 3 says, who can climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can be in the presence of the God who is perfectly holy? God is completely righteous. God is perfect. There is not an inkling of anything imperfect about God. 
There is a, when you read through the Old Testament, there is almost a sense of an aura about who God is and his holiness. Now, when it talks about climbing the mountain, it's probably talking about Mount Zion, which is the, the place where the tabernacle and ultimately the temple are built, and it's sort of the place in which described as God dwells. But my mind wants to go back to Mount Sinai, too. The place where Moses gets the Ten Commandments and finds out from God how the, his people are to live. And Moses is on that mountain and God says to him, you can come up the mountain, but nobody else. And anybody who comes onto the mountain, it's at the risk of their lives. And the holy place is probably the holy of holies. That one place in the tabernacle of the temple where the high priest, one person, one time a year is allowed to go. And anybody else who tries to enter that place at any time, it does so at the risk of their lives. Because they're entering the holy place. And when David asks this question, the answer, of course, is no one. Who can climb the mountain of the Lord? Who can possibly exist in the holy presence of God? No one can. Absolutely no one is worthy of being in the presence of the holy God. No one. And yet, one of the most surprising things about this psalm is that without batting an eye, David says, well, there are some people. Is the people who have clean hands and a pure heart. The people who don't worship idols never tell lies. Now, honestly, if, when you read that description, maybe we think, well, I don't worship idols. I don't have little images sitting on my shelves at home. But the other ones, that's tough. I think what he's really just, he's not talking about people who are perfect. He's talking about people whose hearts are turned toward God. Isn't it interesting he talks about clean hands and pure hearts? Hands representing our actions, hearts representing our attitudes, our thoughts. One of the great struggles that, that God's people have had through the, through the ages, and we continue to have, is that, our, that we have our, our actions and our attitudes meshed together. So often we say, well, my, my actions weren't right, and I really hurt those people, or I really did the wrong things, but my heart was in the right place, so I'm okay. And the other side of it is, well, my actions were right, but my heart isn't right, but at least I did the right thing. I hate this person, but I'll treat them nicely. And when he's talking about the holiness of God, he's talking about having clean hands and a pure heart. It's the holistic being of who we are. It's one of the reasons why on those I gave online cards that are in front of you, that hopefully if you give online, you're using those cards every week to put in the offering plate, to connect you with everybody else who gives as we gather each Sunday. You'll notice on those cards, you, there's a hand and a heart. Because we've come to realize that stewardship is never just about what we give. It's also the heart from which we give it. And it's not just the heart from which we give it. It's also what we give. Because God is always concerned about every part of our being. And, he, and his desire is that we would have clean hands and a pure heart. And what he's really talking about is not perfection. 
See, we tend to go one of either extreme with this thing. On the one hand, we say, well, God must expect perfection. And the church has veered off that direction through our history and said, unless you can be perfect, then God doesn't want you. And all that creates is hypocrisy. But we've also gone the other way and said, well, if we can't be perfect, then it doesn't really matter to God what we do. Anything is okay. And that, too, is a problem. Because David's clear, there are some expectations that God has of us. Jesus says, love the Lord your God for your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's a sense in which that's what David is describing here. When we tell lies, when we worship idols, we're putting ourselves ahead of God and other people. It's the combination of that. And there are expectations. And it really shouldn't surprise us. Have you seen those AT&T wireless commercials? You know, I, I, I saw one the other day where the guy walks into, into a mechanic's shop and the guy's got a car up on the lift and he says to the mechanic, are you, are you guys good at, at doing brakes? And the mechanic says, we're okay. He says, what do you mean? You're just okay? He'll say, we got a motto around here. If the brakes don't stop you, something will. And the voiceover comes on and says, just okay is not okay. And particularly with your wireless network. Now, they got a whole series of these about, you know, your surgeon is just okay. Your tattoo artist is just okay. The guy who runs the Ferris wheel is okay. The people moving your priceless possessions are okay. And it comes back to just okay is not okay. And you, you're, you shouldn't expect that of your wireless network. And I'm thinking to myself, if we expect more than just okay of our phones, why would it surprise us that God expects more than just okay? There are expectations God has. And at the heart of what he's talking about here is this sense of that we want what God wants. We prayed a few moments ago, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we're really saying here, what David is saying is God welcomes people into his presence who want his kingdom to be what it is. Who want God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Even if we are imperfect about following it, even if we struggle with doing it, even if our attitudes are not what they always should be and our actions are not what they should be. We want the kingdom to be what it is and we want God to rule and reign in everything. And that's our passion and that's our desire. And that's what God is asking of us. It's not perfectionism, but it's not mediocrity either. It is this heart desire to want what God wants. We want the kingdom, we want the world to operate exactly as God wants it to operate. We want the church to be established exactly the way God wants it to be established. We want our relationships to be rooted in what God wants for us. And we begin to push ourselves out of the center so that God can be in the center. And it's our passion, our desire. And God says, and David says, these are the folks that God says, hey, I want you in my presence. You're welcome in my presence. And it's not because he's trying to exclude other people. It's just that in God's presence, that's what happens. 
God's kingdom is done. God's will is done. His kingdom comes. That's how it operates in his presence. And if we don't want that, then we don't want to be in God's presence. We want anything but God's presence. We're going to run as far away as we can from God's presence. Because we don't want the kingdom to be established and rooted in love and grace and compassion and truth. We want the kingdom about me. But in God's kingdom, in his presence, it's about him. It's about what he wants, what he desires. Because David goes on to say, in his kingdom is blessing. It's in his kingdom that we find all that we've been seeking. We find hope and peace and life. We find joy. We find shalom. As God always intended it from the beginning of creation. It's exactly what God desires. And we can only find that in his presence because he is the only source of that. And if we don't want that, we're going to run as far away as possible from it. But if we want the kingdom to be what God says it is, if we want the kingdom to be established in the principles and the ideas and and around the heart of God, then we will find blessing in his presence. Now you come to this last section, and quite frankly, it feels a little bit out of place. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of me as I read this, I think, man, David, he's not real good with transitions in the psalm. But he seems to jump from one thing to the next to the next. And you get to this last section, and he, he talks about the king of glory. There is, a, there is some sense in which people believe that actually when, the, when the, David and the, brought the, the ark back to the city... That they actually sort of reenacted these words at the gates. They came and they knocked on the gates and they said, open up the gates that the king of glory may enter in. And there's some speculation that that was repeated on on an annual basis during some of the festivals as they would, again, make their pilgrimage into into the city. It strikes me that it might help to ingrain that in our minds if we did that for a moment this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand for a second, and I'm going to ask this group over here on my left, my right, your left, okay, your left, I'm going to ask you to to kind of turn toward each other if you can, and maybe glance at the screens, and I'm going to give you the, the lettering that's in white, and you guys that's in yellow. So if you can turn and face each other for just a moment, and maybe out of the corner of your eye still see the screen, you guys start. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors. And let the King of glory enter. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors. And let the King of Glory enter. The Lord of Heaven's armies. He is the King of Glory. Okay, thanks. You can be seated. You can imagine what a powerful moment that would be as this, this dialogue takes place on both sides of the gate and the doors of that city. Here's the thing that intrigues me about that. I would think David would say, listen up, people. The king of glory is coming back up because he's smashing down these gates. 
You can't hold him back. Get ready, people. The King of glory, the Almighty One, the Holy One, is going to trample down the walls, the doors. He's coming in. But he doesn't say that. It is almost as if he is saying, look, he's knocking at the door and saying, will you let him in? Open up. Let the King of glory enter. Does the King of glory really need to ask permission to enter? If you're the King of glory, if you're the glorious King, if you're the Almighty God, the Creator and Ruler of all, the Holy One, do you really need to ask permission? Don't you just walk in wherever you want to go? I mean, if the president or the, the queen or an emperor of, of a, some nation shows up at somebody's house, you better believe they're coming in. And, and I guarantee you, they will send a scout team ahead to make sure that whatever home they're going to, the people are home and they're ready to open the door. It'll be open when you get here. I think that's what intrigues me about Revelation 3.20, where he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I will enter. Holman Hunt made that, that passage famous in his painting, Christ the Light of the World. And people have noticed that in that painting, there is no latch on the outside of the door. It can only be opened from the inside. The king of glory knocking. But that too is the kind of God that he is. He's a God who's willing to be vulnerable and take the risk of being rejected. He's the God who says, will you let me in? Even though he could storm the gates and there's not a thing we could do about it. And the reason he knocks and the reason he's vulnerable It's because his deepest desire with us is relationship. What he wants more than anything with us is relationship. He wants us in intimacy with him that we might know the joy and the life of peace with him and relationship with him and life with him. And you can't force relationship. It has to be mutual. I mean, he could force himself on us in a moment, but he doesn't because what he wants from us is a mutual relationship of love. That's the kind of God that he is. Is he the king of glory? Yes. He's the king of glory who's willing to be vulnerable and to risk being rejected by any one of us because that's the nature of relationships, real Genuine relationships. And it's in that relationship that we begin to understand why it's important that Yahweh is the glorious king, the king of glory. Because if Yahweh is the king of glory, then we have hope. We have hope for our lives. I was thinking about Royal Family Kids Camp this week and you see these people standing in front of you and what's ahead of them. And and I'm asking myself, what would make us think that spending a week with these children would have really any long-term effect on their lives? It's just one week out of 52 in a year. 
Why would we go through all the time and energy, the thousands of hours that Nancy and all of you volunteers give in preparation for the camp and during the camp? Why would we expend all of this energy? Why would we use all of the financial resources that are invested in this camp? Why would we do all of that? What makes us think that that is a worthy thing to do? One reason. Because Yahweh is the king of glory. And in his presence, lives get transformed. And people are made new. And the dead are raised to life. And the despairing have hope. And darkness shines with light. And that's why we do things like royal family. That's why we do all the other things that we do because we believe in the king of glory. That he is who he says he is. He's good. He's faithful. And he wants more for us than we could ever dream or imagine for ourselves. And there is no more clearer image of that than this table that Jesus comes into this world in a, as a baby and lives his life in perfect, as, as a perfect human being and then goes to the cross and rises from the dead and ascends to be with the Father and promises to reappear to establish the kingdom in all of its fullness. And as we come to this table, we are coming face to face with the reality of who the King of glory is. Yes, the God of power and holiness, but this God of love and grace who invites us into his presence and knocks on the door of our hearts and says, if you will let me in, there will be transformation in life. Father, we want to thank you that you are the king of glory. We worship you today in all of your greatness, your power. And Father, we give you thanks that you desire relationship with us. And that your intent for us is life, shalom, transformation. Give us grace to open our hearts to you. We pray this even as we pray over these elements this morning. May your blessing rest upon them. That as we eat and drink, we may be filled anew with your Spirit's transforming grace. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.